Welcome to my digital talk. Uh, today's title is U.S. Defense and Security Policy Post-COVID-19. And my guest today is Franz Stefan Gatti, who is Research Fellow for Cyber, Space and Future Conflict at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. He's focused specifically on future conflict and the future of war operating out of the IISS London office. Now, we have a lot of issues to unpack today, and I would like to use the opportunity to start immediately with the very hot issue of German-American relations. Now, yesterday, the US President Donald Trump confirmed in public for the very first time uh, that his administration is planning to cut the US military troop presence in Germany from its current level of roughly 35,000 to a reduced force of 25,000. Um, that was linked to Germany's failure to reach a 2% spending threshold agreed by NATO member states in 2014. Now, some analyst, analysts are linking it also to the refusal by the Chancellor Merkel um, to participate in the planned G7 summit um, in Camp David. But of course, there is much more. Now, I would like to ask Franz, what is your assessment of these current developments, this obvious deterioration of the relations between Germany and the United States? And what do you think will be the implications specifically for the security and defense field uh, when it comes to the transatlantic um, community? Welcome, Franz. Thank you very much uh, for having me, Valina. It's, uh, it's a great pleasure to be in your program. And I should perhaps say at the beginning that I am actually in the United States at the moment. I'm not in London. I was supposed to relocate to London for my new job and the pandemic intervened and I'm still, still in New York at the moment. And I think you picked a really interesting week to discuss US defense and security issues. Lots of stuff that's happening and um, we saw President Trump's remarks yesterday, and I thought that it was just fairly interesting how he phrased it, first of all. I do think it's somewhat of a repeat that we've seen over the last couple of years, Trump always coming up with this idea that Germany is not paying its dues for NATO, which is not true, as we most of us probably know. Um, it's really much more about individual national defense budgets and not the overall budget for NATO. That is the issue here, the famous 2%. Um, but I think overall, when it comes to this uh, US-German debate about NATO, I think there are perhaps three points that are worth considering here. Well, first of all, um, it's nothing new, really. This debate about the United States pulling out troops from Europe or specifically Germany has been, owing, has been going on since essentially the 1950s. We tend to forget that there was a big debate prior to this general consensus in American foreign policy based on containment and a more interventionist 
defense and security policy during the Cold War years in the United States about what the role of the United States should be. And it was not a given and natural given for the United States to station troops all around the globe. Um, and this debate about moving troops back to the United States has been going on for so many decades and it constantly has been flaring up. So this is, in my opinion, not, not really an exception. I think what, it may, what really makes a difference now, though, is with Trump talking about it, usually these, these sorts of announcements or discussions, even internal discussions in Congress or the White House, are usually accompanied by a big, big public statement on U.S. commitment to NATO or a U.S. commitment to U.S. National, uh, European security, and that's something that has been missing. So I think that's one, one point here. My second point, I think, would be that this debate is really very much internal in the United States, and it doesn't really affect the German public too much. Frankly, a large portion of the German public doesn't really care whether the United States is withdrawing some troops from Germany or not. It, it really has, I think it's a question of semantics when it comes to national security in Germany. I think for most Germans, when you talk about threats or national security threats, most people would still think that the one thing they associate with it is probably a land invasion of Germany. And if that's not happening, it doesn't really matter. National and defense policy does not really matter when it comes when it comes to NATO. So I think this idea has not really arrived in German minds that there are other threats also that need to be dealt with globally and also in Europe that go outside this idea that Germany is defending its borders against Russia or any other conventional adversary. So I think they're not really too too worried about it. And um, I do think that, that this is really much more about the United States having this debate internally and also, frankly, Trump probably uh, trying to punish Germany for something. And as you said, maybe it has something to do with the relationship between Merkel and Trump. And there again, the presidents, for example, in the 1970s, you had a really bad relationship between the West German Chancellor Helmut Schmidt and uh, Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter came into office in the late 1970s, also on an agenda where he wanted to pull out troops from all around the world, move them back to the United States. And um, Schmidt and Carter got off to a really, really bad start. Um, Schmidt thought, um, well, rather, Carter actually thought that he was go that 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 Schmidt was interfering in elections because a few weeks prior to the election back then, um, Schmidt gave an interview in which he praised the Republican candidate, Gerald Ford, the sitting president at the time. And he really didn't think much about um, of, of Carter's foreign policy expertise. He really considered him this peanut farmer from Georgia who doesn't really know enough about nuclear deterrence, enough about NATO-Soviet relations. And he really was fairly disdainful of Carter. And that only really, really, really changed towards the end of the tenure of Carter and I can go more into this. I guess my last point is also that the troop presence and the U.S. troop presence in Germany is not really so much about defending Germany, although that certainly plays a role in defending Europe. It's really that the United States military presence in Europe has really become much more about the U.S. projecting power um, into the Middle East, into Africa, into other regions. 
And over the last decades, at least particularly when it comes to the wars in Afghanistan um, and Iraq. And so it's not, it's not so much about combat troops being removed from Germany. Germany for the United States is also this gigantic staging area, this gigantic logistics hub, with big a big military hospital, for example, big nature maneuver ground for conducting military exercises. Then you have two of the six uh, geographical combatant commands, U.S. African uh, Command and U.S. European Command in Germany. So that's just a lot of logistics that are really converging in Germany. And I'm saying all this to, to, to say that at the end of the day, no matter what decision the president is taking on this issue, it's not going to impact U.S. or NATO conventional deterrence against Russia. The only real conventional threat in Europe, and it's not also impacting U.S. nuclear deterrence against Russia. And I have to say that a lot of the reasons why you have U.S. troops in Germany to begin with had to do with nuclear deterrence, and not so much with anything else. So perhaps let me stop here, and um, I, I don't want to go on mm -hmm. for too long. But basically, how I'm framing this. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you also posted today a um, very interesting quote uh, by Henry Kissinger uh, to Franz uh, Josef Strauss uh, from 1972, saying, you simply cannot expect the U.S. to defend an economic competitor. You simply cannot expect this to go on indefinitely. Now, obviously, the security matters are the one side of the coin, but then on the other side of the coin, we see growing um, rift in terms of in, term, in terms of geoeconomic interests between United States and, uh, and, uh, and China. We will talk about it later, but also between the United States and the European Union, respectively German, as this industrial heart of the European Union. Isn't it possible that uh, security and defense matters and issues that you've named, for instance, the nuclear deterrence? We've seen um, recently that the Social Democrats um, basically brought back the topic of nuclear weapons uh, on the discussion table, a long, long, uh, I mean, forgotten issue, let's put it that way, for at least for the last decades now being revived. Uh, in the internal discussion uh, between the great coalition members. So, on the other side, if we expect that relations between the United States and Germany will deteriorate because of these two economic uh, aspects, Trump named the Nord Stream 2.0 uh, gas project with Russia, but also 5G, uh, Huawei negotiations with China that were actually going on prior to COVID-19. So issues that are very, very important for the U.S. Uh, security and due economic interests that are on, the, on this side of the Atlantic actually being perceived in a different way. Do you think that this would actually lead to a kind of a deterioration between the European and the American allies within the transatlantic community? Do you think also that Germany will be pushing more for uh, this so-called strategic autonomy, um, so-called European army, if you like, which is more or less, uh, more or less, uh, uh, let's say, um, 
well, um, kind of a still hot air debate, uh, which media is using for, you know, articles and uh, for um, PR, PR um, attention, rather than it's really filled with substance behind it. So how do you think uh, this is going to, to, to develop in the next half of a year, let's say prior to the elections, but definitely also given that we are going to witness U.S. elections this year? Yes, I think there's a lot of uh, stuff to unpack here. And let me just first of all perhaps answer this question about deteriorating relations between the United States and Germany. I think that's somewhat overstated. I do think that the majority of policymakers in Europe and in the United States still think that European and um, US national interests are actually much aligned on a lot of issues. And I think that's something that we consciously have to strengthen also in a couple of months, no matter who is going to sit in the White House. My second point would be that these sorts of tensions are really nothing new. Again, going back to history, there's always been this tension between European defense commitments and European free riding on US, uh, underneath the US nuclear umbrella, for example, or even under US um, conventional force buildup in Europe. So um, this has been going on, and then, you know, all these accusations of the United States against Europe and its allies in Asia primarily Japan, about not paying enough and about not contributing enough to all of this. It's somewhat of a double-edged sword because on the one hand, the United States wants Europe to be more independent and uh, invest more money into into defense. But then, of course, it, all, it also wants to maintain a certain amount of influence. And I think when you look at some of the documents that have been, for example, circulated during uh, the presidency of George H.W. Bush to Bush one and then also under Clinton, and even under Reagan, the idea of US, the US presence in Europe was not always so much really about defending Europe, as I said. It was, had much more to do with the United States maintaining a substantial troop presence on the Euro-Asian mandlets for geopolitical reasons and also for US national standing. And um, close relations with NATO essentially also built mostly upon this idea that through NATO, the United States can influence European affairs and prevent another world war or another regional conflict, at least, from happening in Europe. So there's very much a historical consciousness that factors in the legacy of the First World War, where the United States withdrew from Europe, and then a couple of decades later, it had to engage again in another conflict. And I think that's still heavily, heavily weighed on your uh, U.S. consciousness at least among a certain policy elite in Washington, D.C. My second point, I think, would be that essentially whenever transatlantic relations really got into trouble, the Soviet Union or Russia failed, failed the two continents out. In a sense, whenever you had a new commitment, whenever you had a crisis, let's say in the 1960s, Lyndon B. Johnson and the Vietnam War, and Johnson was really upset that, you, that Europe didn't really contribute any troops and thought that the Vietnam War was nonsense. Or like even in the 1950s, when you, when you had the Suez crisis and France and the UK were really told by the United States, your times or your days as a great power are over. Or like all the way into the 19, 
um, 70s also when I was talking about this disagreement between Carter and Helmut Schmidt and a couple of other European leaders about the future of NATO. The Soviets always did something that sort of saved NATO and consequently also the US uh, troop presence in Europe, particularly Germany. You had the um, Hungarian Revolution in 1956, if I remember my date correctly, then you had the the Prague Spring in 1968, where the, the Warsaw Pact invaded Czechoslovakia. And then, of course, in 1979, you had uh, Jimmy Carter, uh, sorry, uh, the Soviets invading invading uh, Afghanistan, which triggered a, a very bellicose response from Jimmy Carter. And also recently, in 2014, again, you had Russia seizing Ukraine and invading them. Um, uh, sorry, the, the Crimea Peninsula and also invading Eastern Ukraine and, and all of this together again gave new life to NATO and also made uh, Europe again much more prominent within US strategic thinking. Now having said all of that, what European leaders need to realize and also what German leaders, I mean, need to realize is that the United States doesn't see Europe anymore as its primary Primary, primary field of interest when it comes to geopolitics and national security. It's pivoting or it has been pivoting to Asia. Um, and that's something that needs to be kept in mind when we discuss all these issues, because no matter what's going to happen, and no matter who is going to be in the White House in a couple of months from now, I do expect a, a, a drawdown of US troops eventually and also less US defense commitment to Europe in the long run. This doesn't necessarily have to mean over the next couple of years, but definitely over the next decade, I think it's going to be somewhat of a reduced US footprint in, in Europe. And that, I think, is something that we really have to have to consider. Now, and uh, as your question about strategic autonomy, I just don't think it's realistic. And I do understand where it's coming from this debate and what, um, uh, why we, why a lot of people think that this is important, that we are this pole in between China um, and the United States in this new age of multipolarity. I know you have different opinions about this multipolar system um, that's emerging, or at least I think you think that it's not really emerging, but um, I do think that, that, that it's, it, it just can't happen in Europe how we envision it in many, many ways. And I do think we have to somehow find a way to find better ties with the United States, step closer to the United States, no matter what differences we have, because I think there's really no, there are really no alternative for the simple fact that I don't think European policymakers can be convinced to spend more in defense. They cannot be convinced to really develop some of those key military uh, capabilities that you need in order to secure Europe's security, um, particularly when it comes to the periphery of Europe, but also really power projection capabilities beyond Europe that, that, that go into other regions of the world. I think it's massively expensive. And then also, what is really the, how, do you, can, how can you sell this really to the public if there's no real threat? And that brings me back to the idea of threat or distorted threat perception in Europe, where what I mentioned earlier, the German public, for example, really largely still thinks about a threat being mostly a land invasion or like a conventional attack. And I think we've done a really poor job of them conveying this to the wider public that, that modern warfare or even the future of warfare 
wolf fighting is moving into different directions and we are moving into the cyberspace, the electromagnetic magnetic spectrum, it's um, information warfare, it's the cognitive space that's really going to play a huge role and this is really something your borders are no longer going to protect you. Mm -hmm. Now, speaking of uh, threat perceptions, uh, there's definitely one particular shift that is very interesting when it comes to the US uh, security and defense policy, and that's uh, called China. Now, the USA and NATO actually started uh, the year 2020 with big plans to practice vital military skills. Um, at the NATO, the last NATO summit uh, in London, uh, China was identified as a potential threat for the very first time. On the other side, strategic documents initiated by US uh, uh, administrative bodies and also by Pentagon actually pointed also to the, to the um, uh, emerging um, potential threat uh, coming from China. Now, and then again, COVID-19 hit and uh, some of these discussions were, of course, uh, were set aside in order to focus on the health crisis. But um, the expectation, of course, is the one that um, that this is going to uh, go back on the on the table. Now, the administration also um, announced its determination to pull out Middle Eastern um, to pull out from uh, from from certain uh, battlefields, and you've named you gave uh, you gave some examples um, in order actually to focus on uh, countering the rise of Russia and China. So now these two countries are actually often mentioned together. What I've been calling calling the dragon bear uh, threat, and uh, on the other side. Uh, many of the actions uh, by Trump pointed to a different direction, uh, such as the decision to send uh, thousands more troops to the Middle East or uh, the killing of Iranian commander uh, Soleimani at the beginning of this year. It uh, almost seems like as it was uh, in a different decade, but it happened this January with a followed uh, escalation of relations between the United States and Iran. So. There is obviously a situation in which certain perceptions and threats uh, are still the same, the case with Iran. But then again, uh, China is certainly going to be in the middle of uh, US policy, um, strategic policy documents. Now, I would like to ask you how this is uh, also coupled now with the military budget plans uh, the number is 741 billion um, uh, that the White, uh, White House has been rolling uh, rolling out. And how do you see actually this Russia-China focus uh, in the broader context of future uh, operations, future uh, planning, uh, defense planning? Um, and uh, I would like to hear your assessment on this military budget uh, debate, as we know that uh, China has also been pushing for an increase of its military budget. Uh, and the milit military budget uh, discussion is always something that on this side of the Atlantic has a very different uh, 
you know, very different uh, assessment. Mm-hmm. So what's your take? Yeah, I mean, again, there's so much to unpack here. Um, I hope I'm not going to forget anything. You just have to jump back in and remind me in case I haven't answered uh, a question. So um, perhaps let me start off with, with this idea that has been really going around in the United States within the strategic community here over the last couple of years and is also reflected in documents about a new age of great power competition. And the United States, or rather the Pentagon, defines great powers essentially as a nuclear armed potential adversary who can conventionally challenge the United States. So that's very broad. And there are really just two countries for the United States that can do that, A, Russia and B, China. United States, uh, I always say the United States, the Pentagon considers Russia a declining great power and China a rising great power. And that's also reflected in various documents like the national security strategy from two years ago, the national defense strategy, and then also the national military strategy, which are the three principal documents when it comes to national de- overall national security and defense policy that sort of offers strategic guidance for the rest of the US government in this new age of great power competition. Now, what does these documents have in common essentially is that they all say we are in this new confrontation with near-peer or almost peer competitors. And we have to constantly be engaging with these countries. Everything is competition now. The lines between peace and conflict are blurring. And because of that, we need to make some substantial changes. And so when it comes to the national defense strategy, which I think is probably the most important document of the three that I mentioned within the defense community. And if you look closely at what all of these, um, of what all the other branches within the Department of Defense and the individual services, uh, military services in the United States have been doing is they've really, really tailored their responses and their um, initiatives and their new projects really in accordance with the national defense strategy. And that defense strategy is supposed to be valid for at least five more years, I think. Having said that, you never really know. We have, when there is a new president, I think either way, we'll probably have a revised document um, next year or in two years from now. Even if Trump stays in power, I think his new cabinet is going to be so different that we also will have most likely a stumbled change change strategy. But I think the core about refocusing on China and Russia is going to stay in place. And this also includes what you mentioned, this gradual drawdown from the Middle East. However, having said that, international defense strategy, for example, specifically speaks of a two plus three formula when it comes to um, national security prioritization. You have um, China, Russia are the first two, two, and then the other three are North Korea, Iran, and global terrorism. So I think it very much is in line with what the national defense strategy says, and I think the United States is very much focused on Iran besides anything else in the Middle East. It doesn't really want to remain engaged in Iraq, for its own sake, it wants to remain engaged in Iraq and in other parts of the region to detain and deter Iran. And in the long run, I think that the United States will not be able to do all of these five things. Because for the first time also, they, the debate has taken place in the United States uh, defense circles 
about the ideas that the United States might not be able to dominate as much the war fighting space as, as it used to over the 1990s and the 2000s. This idea of a new age of defense without dominance is now hotly debated in the United States. And I think it's a very, very interesting time to be now in the United States and be a defense analyst, because I think there might be a fundamental shift when it comes to these issues. And this, interestingly, though, is right now debated. It's in papers and new so-called operational concepts are being developed, like new ways how the United States is going to use its military, new strategies are also developed, but it hasn't really properly been reflected in the defense budget. And now I come to the defense budget because in many, many ways, what you see when you look at the defense budget is that a lot of this old legacy force structure within the military is still in place and a lot of money is getting poured into legacy systems that can't really or are not extremely helpful when it comes to competing with China, whether it's in wartime or peacetime or the so-called gray zone area, that area that I described area, uh, earlier, that's somewhat in between war and peace, this uh, perpetual competition between the great powers. And to me, that's very striking. A lot of people think 750 billion. I mean, it's an insane defense budget to have, but when you look at it, at it in detail, there's not really a lot of room to play with. Uh, for defense planets, it's a substantially, um, um, how should I put it, it's it's really a, a really, really bad process that needs to be overhauled, how the U.S. defense budget is drafted, how it's passed, and it really very much goes back to this problem that a lot of people have identified um, over the years called this military uh, contractor, Congress, and uh, defense department complex essentially like this iron triangle as it's called in dc where you have congress defense contractors and the department of defense and all three have very specific interests when it comes to the defense budget and all three of interests are often not aligned and they sort of paralyze one another in many ways so whenever the united the, the pentagon wants to cut a, a program a defense a weapon system that it thinks is no longer needed and that doesn't really reflect military realities congress puts it back in because of the lobby by because defense contractors are lobbying although that's also sometimes overstated to what degree these these defense contractors are successful when it comes to lobbying it's very often just really for on um, the individual congressmen or senators to keep jobs within their district the u.s defense industry is really a big a big player in all of this, much bigger than in most European countries, and that's what I think Europeans often forget. But all of this together really creates this atmosphere where it's really difficult for the United States um, to make any substantial plan, uh, changes in its defense budget. And I think in the long run, this is really going to undermine US military readiness. And of course, that's really complaining at, or like, like arguing at a fairly high high level. I don't think US military preeminence is in any any danger in the long run, not from China for a while at least. And I do think though that there are some structural issues that need to be addressed when it comes to the US defense budget. And one small item, for example, that I think often doesn't get a lot of play is how much money the United States actually spends on its soldiers. And just in terms of uh, monetary compensation, just how much it actually pays its soldiers for its missions. I mean, if you are private, if you enlist right out the high school in the United States military in the US Army, I think you make something around 
40 or 45 thousand dollars which is a lot of money for anyone who knows anything about military pay that's a lot a lot of money that you pay an individual soldier and then you get all the other benefits and and and, and perks that come with it all the subsidies and if you're an officer if you go to one of the big service academies here um like west point which is about an hour and a half from where i'm right now you you get commissioned as a second lieutenant into the U.S. Army, and then you make about seventy, seventy-five thousand, eighty thousand on occasion, which is again a lot of money. And in addition to that, you have all the other perks again and benefits that you get with that. And then of course you have big pension obligations, other sort of expenses, and part of that also factors into the defense budget. And I think that's something that's growing really fairly fairly quickly within the budget. Right now it's about a third, and that's really going to substantially increase over the next couple of years, in my opinion. And that again also cuts into this idea that the United States in this new age of great power competition, where it needs to confront China and Russia, can really invest in new weapon systems um, and in restructuring its military forces. I think that's definitely something that, 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 that needs to be taken into account here. And perhaps let me stop here whether you have a follow-up question. I, I forgot whether I answered all your questions here. <laughs> no, you covered quite a lot, uh, but I would like to add a minor question to it that's related also to military budget, future military plans, that is the Indo-Pacific region, because it's also being present in uh, the U.S. strategic documents as one of the playground, future play playgrounds of global and regional power competition. Now, knowing that India is trying to become the third uh, largest economic power by 2035, according to projections, of course, we should be very cautious about this kind of projections, but still, um, India overtook Great Britain and uh, as an economic power, uh, which is, uh, quite significant of, an, of a phenomenon. And uh, having these two regional powers as direct neighbors with nuclear weapons and having in mind the rapprochement between China and Pakistan and also against the background of uh, the regional geostrategic plans by China to expand geographically also through the economic corridor in Pakistan to the Indian Ocean and to uh, get to Africa, but also on the other side, on the other side through Russia, through Central Asian countries uh, to get connected to Europe. Now, obviously, for the United States, there is going to be the new role. And of course, for U.S., uh, probably future U.S. troops deployments, uh, this new role of finding new allies strengthening old alliances, for instance, with Anglosphere allies, uh, such as the Five Eyes uh, members, but also specifically in Asia, there are already old allies of the United States that still very much rely on uh, the United uh, States uh, help in dealing, for instance, with China. So uh, my question to you is how, uh, how do you see this kind of possible developments? Will we witness, for instance, future redeployments? Maybe some of these troops will be probably just redeployed to other regions or other parts that we haven't expected uh, yet. And uh, we probably will see a kind of not just redeployment, but also, you know, investment of uh, in, in, in future security and defense pacts, 
doesn't have to be a strategic alliance in a way that we understand it here in the uh, within the transatlantic community, but maybe a sort of an alternative to a NATO, an Asian NATO. How do you see this? Um, is there any kind of a reference uh, or discussion among uh, the US security and defense uh, experts and colleagues uh, when it comes to this uh, possible developments, knowing that China is already, for instance, investing in also a kind of a pondo of uh, NATO in Asia, that is, for instance, the, uh, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, even though that it's not being described as a security organization yet, we have, of course, discussions about anti-terror activities and operations. So we have definitely security matters also on the table. This is a lot, very broad picture, but you can yeah, decide wow. which part to, to uh, take. Um, yeah, 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 no, it's, uh, it's uh, a great question again. And, hmm, well, let me first perhaps start with this idea. I think what you, what you are talking about is really crucial to understand also this new age of great power competition, in my opinion, this idea that the United States, unlike Russia or China, who actually can rely on a host of allies in Asia and both in Europe. And I think that's really it, its underlying strength in many ways. Now, what's interesting is that for the first time, at least since I've been in the United States and I've been here since 1999, you really have a big debate about the value of alliances. You actually have to justify to certain segments within uh, the establishment, or rather the, the policy, DC policy crowd, um, the value of alliances and why the United States is actually stronger with allies, which I think is very telling in itself. And I have to say that I don't think a lot of these, these I mean, I what I found interesting is that a lot of people see this as self-evident that the United States needs with strong alliances that the United States needs NATO, that the United States needs to be engaged in the world. And I think people have gotten a bit lazy when it comes to that. And have also started using, I sort of, you know, stock phrases when it comes to discussing it, sort of like, do you enter a debate about something that is seen as self-evident? Well, the United States needs allies and makes, you know, you, uh, allies actually make the United States stronger. And there hasn't really been a very detailed debate on why that's the case. And I think it's very healthy for this debate to be happening right now in the United States, generally speaking. And it is happening. Now that's one point. My second point is specifically to Asia at the role of India, US, India relations. I think it's somewhat overstated. I don't think the India, for example, will ever specifically commit to the United States. It's never going to be an ally for multiple reasons. It's just not in India's nature to do so. It really wants to be more neutral perhaps, although let's see what's happening this week. There's this uh, border dispute between China and India that has flared up again this morning. I think there were a couple of people killed yesterday evening um, um, along the, 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 the Sino-Indian uh, border. But um, I wouldn't overstate, I wouldn't really overstate what this really means for India's, India's overall um, new direction when it comes to 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 um, its relationship with the United States. I think the United States wants to push India toward closer ties, and there is actually a lot of military cooperation that has been happening over the last over the last couple of years, and that's strengthening for sure. But I don't think we'll ever see a proper India-U.S. alliance, for example. At the same time, also I think India and China 
at the tactical level, and I think that's what we saw yesterday, and that stuff you know was happened. There has been an, an escalation, but I do think that um, both India and China, at the operational and strategic level, are really trying to deconflict and also find um, a dialogue to solve this dispute peacefully. Um, so that's that, that's one point. Overall, I have to say I have to go back to the national defense strategy again because I think it is sort of a guiding, a good a, a good um, a good good departure point to discuss any of these issues. And what's interesting there is that the national defense strategy paints the picture that it's extremely difficult. It will be extremely difficult for the United States military to protect power into Russia and China and into. Um, Europe and Asia overall. So they're very much worried that the old model of the United States, the expeditionary warfare model where there's a conflict happening somewhere, the idea would probably be the 1991 Gulf War where the United States build up its troops for a couple of weeks and months and at some point, according to its own time and, and, and place, decided to attack. In this instance, it was Iraq. Um, I think that that sort of um, like the national defense strategy that this is really over and they really need to think hard about force postures and about repositioning its troops around the globe. And they want to specifically find means to um, break through what is called an A2AD bubble, anti-access area denial bubble. These are certain capabilities that China and Russia are feed, uh, fielding. Um, in order to really deter the United States from entering a conflict and in order to really keep U.S. forces at bay. And a lot of stuff that's happening or has been happening over the last two years in the United States has really been mostly about trying to figure out how to push through this A to AD bubble. And it's not really just in the kinetic dimension. That is, it's not really just conventional warfare. You have cyber, you have all these other dimensions. And they've been working really hard in the United States at the conceptual level, at least for now, um, to really work through these problems, these military problems, these operational problems in Europe and in Asia. And I think that also will require good alliances. And I think that's sort of the weak spot within that national defense strategy because that document has been created under US defense, uh, then US Defense Secretary Jim Mattis. And it, I think it's a very, overall, a very good document, but it, it, it sort of, where the, the single weak spot that I detect or that I I have actually also uh, talked about in the past, it's really alliance, um, um, it's, it's really how to maintain alliances and how to really convince European and Asian allies to really do more when it comes to this new force posture and new positioning of troops and also what do you really do if you don't really need a lot of these troops? Because as I said, we're moving in a, in a different direction when it comes to war fighting. And I think a lot of people often mistake presence with deterrence. That is in order to deter your opponent from doing something, you need to have a substantial troop presence in, in place, let's say in South Korea or in Japan or in Germany or in the Baltics. And the direction of warfare is really heading into, into a different, um, uh, uh, direction really, and and I think that that that's something that's often misunderstood because we're really moving away from this weapon system slash net um, platform centric approach that's really mostly about tanks and artillery and fighter aircrafts and all this other stuff, 
which is nonetheless going to be important in the future. We're really moving away to a more network-centric approach where it's really about fighting each other's network, degrading each other's networks in order to win in any sort of great power competition that also could at some point really become a high-intensity conflict or a real war between the great powers. And I think that's something that policymakers in Europe have to be aware of because I do think sometimes European policymakers are really, really in a different planet when it comes to some of this stuff in comparison to US policymakers. Whenever I go back to Europe and I talk to some defense planners and so forth, it feels to me like often we are really back in the early 2000s or even 1990s when it comes to, to discussing some of these issues. And that's not really because they don't get the idea, it's just because the money is not there to fundamentally transform European or, or um, Asian militaries. And, and I think that's going to be a big problem in the long run if the United States moves toward more of this network-centric force structure and also uh, repostures its, its overall global forces and 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 how the United States allies in Europe and um, Asia are going to fit in, what sort of issues are going to arise there, particularly when it comes to interoperability, for example, that would be a big thing. How can these forces actually work together? And then, of course, again, you have the question, is this going to weaken or strengthen conventional deterrence? I'm not so much worried about nuclear deterrence in this instance, because I think nuclear deterrence, no matter what people here are thinking in the US, will remain strong for NATO and the United States. I'm not worried about that, but when it comes to conventional deterrence, I think some gaps could open up because of this um, um, shift. So um, yeah, so long answer to multiple questions, um, but I do think mm -hmm. that, that the national defense strategy is a really good document. And I should say though, a lot of the document is classified and this is really based on my own research, what I'm telling, but there, there's a lot of publicly accessible information available and that we think it's a very important if you study this document and what's been written about this document you get a good insight about what's happening i think the last point i have to make though is the bigger question and there's really no yes uh, correct answer to this is to what degree this document is really going to influence things beyond the department of defense for example like, because if you look at national power, you have to look at it more comprehensively. And I think this is really something that that that, that perhaps um, could be analyzed in a bit more detail. And my very last point is actually also that I don't think that we're gonna see too much of a deviation from this national defense strategy, no matter who sits in the White House uh, beginning next year, just because I think this paradigm of great power competition is gonna remain in place. At least that's what my reading is of what's going on in DC at the, at the moment. Mm. Your last point was actually my next question, which was uh, linked to the U.S. Uh, election and uh, whether you would uh, see a change or shift uh, in uh, these kind of developments that you've uh, outlined so broadly, specifically when it comes to the future of uh, war fighting, when it comes to future capabilities. Obviously, the Europeans have to catch up in certain areas, in certain fields, probably the cooperation within the transatlantic community, within NATO, will be one of these uh, fields. But then again, European, uh, the European Commission announced to be a geopolitical commission, so that means it's going to also address some geopolitical tasks and probably will transfer a certain amount of um, uh, well funds to also defense, security, and defense projects. Um, 
but still, um, what you've outlined is a future projection of warfighting, how actually uh, certain capabilities uh, will develop and will be actually will look like. Uh, do you see a certain or potential shift um, after November? If uh, I mean, given that. Um, for instance, a Democrat, uh, Democratic uh, candidate uh, such as Joe Biden wins. Uh, let's be honest about it. The European capitals are hoping for a win on the side of uh, Joe Biden. I mean, the expert community is not even making uh, making a secret of, uh, out of it that uh, there is certainly uh, that, that this certainly will lead to a positive change in the European American relations, respectively, in the transatlantic community, but still um, the political uh, specter is very, very important. But on the other side, we need also the technological. And is it, isn't it that we Europeans are lagging behind quite much when it comes to the future technologies? And if not, uh, is will political will be enough to actually bring some some of this, uh, well, some of this progress also on European soil. Let's put, let's let's point out we have also space force here in Europe, launched by the European uh, Union institutions. We have also some ambitions uh, when it comes to the strategic autonomy. Even though that I agree with you, I don't see how this, is, I don't see a strategic autonomy um, being completed on the side of any actually any state actor in this global power competition. There is no such thing as a strategic autonomy. We all are interdependent into a one really interconnected world uh, when it comes to 2020. Just what is your take? Any change, any shift, or it stays the same no matter who is um, going to win? A couple of points. First of all, it, it, it's true that uh, European leaders in general have preferred Democrats over Republicans, with you know some exceptions. Ronald Reagan in certain capitals was very popular. George H. W. Bush, Bush one was very popular among among a certain certain European leaders. But generally speaking, yes, um, Democrats are usually preferred, and I think that has something to do with 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 European leaders just often being put off by this more you know more cowboy like mentality, if you want to put it, with George W. Bush or also. U.S. nationalism, frankly. The United States calls it U.S. exceptionalism, but it's essentially nationalism. And that's something that, um, that, that European leaders always have a hard time really um, figuring out what it really means and how to deal with it, because it's just so far off from how they conduct politics. That's, that's one thing. Having said that, over the last decades, and this break really only happened with Trump in reality, there's been a lot of convergence on, on few of views when it comes to international politics, defense policy, foreign policy between Republicans and Democrats. So you had this um, elite consensus, so to speak, during the Cold War years, but also during the 1990s, this idea of a somewhat of a, of a liberal hegemony, as someone called it, or um, this idea that the United States needs to be in, in, remain engaged in the world. It has to have a more interventionist foreign policy and a global footprint. Now, if Trump, if Trump remains in power, I think some of this is again going to be called into question. 
I also don't think at the same time that should Biden assume the presidency in 2021. Now, I think that the connection, fortunately, well broke out and France uh, disappeared suddenly. In fact, we were already approaching the end uh, of uh, this uh, session. I had uh, a few more questions for him. I will be waiting for him to re-enter um, the session uh, for another minute or so. And uh, actually, um, obviously, on the Europe, on, on this side of the Atlantic, uh, we. <laughs> I, I'm. You, yes, you disappeared for a second. I suppose uh, that uh, yes. Yes, I don't know what happened there. I'm sorry about that. Um, yeah, no, I also heard some background noise, which was strange. I heard other people talking or whatever it was. Yeah, it was fairly strange. Um, what I wanted to say was that I, I don't know when I got cut off. Um, well, you, you got cut off just when you were pointing out that Biden, I mean, uh, if oh, Biden will be yes, the so I've, I've, president by 2021. Yeah, so I don't think fundamentally that there's going to be, we can't really return to this state prior to 2016. And I think for the first time, what Trump triggered in 2016 is that for the first time, there's an actual debate in the United States happening at the moment about the direction of future defense and foreign policy that goes outside the established perimeters. And I think it's a healthy debate. I think it's a debate that the United States should have had after 1989, and it didn't really, because you had Bill Clinton, and then you had all these um, smaller interventions in the 1990s, and foreign policy didn't matter that much really to the U.S., uh, to, to, to segments within the U.S. Uh, political establishment in the 1990s, despite Bosnia and, and Rwanda and all these other things that were happening. It was fairly much focused on domestic political issues. And then, of course, George W. Bush was also elected into office to reduce the U.S. global footprint. Then you had 9-11 happening, and then you had this new age of forever wars, and now this age of forever wars, as it's called, is slowly coming to an end. So um, Trump was at the end of this this process uh, of this decade-long fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan and this war um, against terror and so forth. And I think um, for the first time now, there's an actual debate going on about the, the future direction of U.S. foreign policy. And I think uh, the consensus is no longer really there to a certain degree. And I think we cannot go back to, to, to business as usual. And I think Biden, when he was at the Munich Security Conference in February 2019, said something to the effect of, well, we'll be back, or just be patient, we'll be back, and so forth. I don't think that's really going to happen. At the same time, I don't think the United States is going to withdraw from the world. Mm -hmm. What specifically I think what's going to be interesting for European policymakers is that if Biden wins, I do think we're going to see a more hawkish foreign and defense policy in reality because they're fairly hawkish elements within the Democratic Party and the Democratic establishment, particularly when it comes to their relationships with China and Russia. So I would be very interested to what degree U.S. allies in Asia and Europe are going to be ready for a more confrontational U.S. defense and uh, foreign policy against these two great powers. And I think one interesting aspect about all of this over the last couple of years is that a lot of the very reasonable requests, in my opinion, for Europe and Asian allies to do more when it comes to uh, confronting 
or rather, rather uh, deterring China and Russia, was they were able to dismiss it because these things or these um, demands came from a Trump-controlled White House or United States where Trump is president. And I think once Biden is in the White House, there are less and less excuses to really step up and also really do more when it comes to all of this. So I do think it's not going to be an unmitigated blessing for Europe and its Asian allies. If they think they can just return and, and seek refuge under the U.S. national security umbrella, I'm th I think they are mistaken when it comes to this, because I do think we are in somewhat of a global shift and a global repositioning of power. And I think that that year that the United States really with overwhelming force can dominate this global international system is just a, an idea of the past. And my major issue when it comes to Europe is that Europe just does not see any threats on the horizon. It's just a fundamentally different world that European leaders live in. They think that Russia is really a threat that's mostly played up by the United States. Of course, there are exceptions when it comes to Eastern Europe. I'm really more focused on Western Europeans. They don't really see any other big issues that can be solved by military means. And I'm really mostly talking about Germany in that that regard. And the idea here is really that, I mean, it's 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 interesting. Once US, the US is really gonna be less interested in the in Europe, for example. I really wonder to what degree this European cohesion or that Europe can really, really keep it together because I do think that the United States and US military troop presence in Europe is the clue that holds all of this together, whether it's NATO or even to a certain degree, the European Union. And we already saw what's happening when you have this wet vacuum of uh, that the US leaves behind, let's say in North Africa, for example, where you have European countries and actually former allies competing um, over over or over interests in in, in in certain countries there and i don't think that's that's really something that is considered um often enough and i think it's something that's also get uh, getting put um like you know if you can't if this is not a problem that we have to deal with next year um there's really no incentive for policymakers to really see any sense of urgency to deal with all of it so i do think it's not possible to go back to business as usual, no matter who is going to sit in the White House in, in, in a couple of months from now. And I also would say that perhaps Biden is not the best, best um, or I think there might be a rude awakening for some European policymakers once Biden assumes um, power, because I do think there's going to be a much more, much more hawkish foreign policy that we can expect from the United States. Having said that, Trump's foreign policy and defense policy is going to be so unpredictable. And and I, I do think that Trump's second term is going to be very different from the first term. And I can only, yeah, I, I wouldn't really, I wouldn't really, really, really make any bets in what direction that really develops. Mm -hmm. Now, our time is running out, but I would like to ask you a final question, which is uh, more of a domestic, has more of a domestic character, but still, uh, even in this domestic, U.S. domestic issue, the U.S. military received unexpectedly, unexpectedly public, uh, public um, attention. Uh, and as you can might guess, uh, my point is about the ongoing social unrests. Now, mm -hmm. the U.S. Uh, Defense Secretary Mark Esper 
criticize the actions of uh, the Minneapolis police in whose custody George Floyd uh, died. Um, and he, he called also the action uh, murder and a horrible crime. He also did not support invoking the Insurrection Act to deploy active duty forces to quell civil un uh, unrests, but the debate about the possible role of the US military is now on the table. And the use of the Insurrection Act has been also discussed as Trump has actually talked about uh, using the military to, uh, well, to quell violent protests on the, street, on the streets of US cities. So my final question to you is, do you expect um, rather undes obviously undesired role of the US military in uh, domestic, such a domestic issue, given that uh, the social uh, unrests uh, continue escalating uh, prior to the US elections and knowing that Trump will make sure to uh, stabilize the situation um, and due to the fact that he can now not rely on a positive economic outlook due to the COVID-19 situation and crisis, post-crisis situation. He would make sure to uh, stabilize the situation so that he actually has good preconditions before running for uh, the presidential elections in November. How do you see, uh, what's your assessment? How do you see these developments from the perspective of the US military once again? Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's a very interesting question and um, a couple of different things to say about that. First of all, it, it, there's always been, the US military has always played a very substantial influence on politics in this country. It's never been apolitical. It, uh, military officers pride themselves to be publicly apolitical and there are a lot of norms that have been established over the years to sort of keep the United States military out of um, um, uh, uh, civilian decision-making processes. But my point has always been that just by its sheer presence, its sheer size, and um, the global nature of this of the, of, of the United States military presence, the military has much more influence on decision-making, vicariously has much more influence on decision-making and foreign policy and defense policy than the militaries in other countries in the world. There's about norms and to what degree Trump and certain members of the armed forces have violated norms. Now, Trump has a very uh, ambivalent relationship to the military. There are certain segments of the military that support Trump, others are really opposed to him. So it's not like one clear-cut uh, you can't really say that the military is, is, is behind Trump. What I've noticed, though, is that there's been a general sense of relief last uh, two weeks ago when it became clear that the military or the defense secretary and also the chief of the Joint Chiefs, the highest ranking military advisor to the president, openly spoke out against some of the policies that Trump suggested during these um, riots and also protests. And um, what I find interesting generally is that this is also not something that's particularly new and going back and tying it back perhaps to our initial discussion about NATO and Germany, Janos Horrigulis of post-war U.S. 
history, in my opinion, would probably be 1968. 1968, domestically and internationally, for the United States was a fairly pivotal year. It was a year where you had massive protests in the United States. You had the Democratic Convention in Chicago, where there was extreme police violence against protesters. The Democratic Party was in disarray. You had the Tet Offensive during the Vietnam War in 1968, where for the first time, a large portion of the American public realized that they're probably not going to win that war. You had uh, the assassination of Martin Luther King. You had the assassination of uh, Robert F. Kennedy, a contender for the Democratic nomination for president in 1968. The entire country was really up in flames and there were protests and riots and all of this was taking place. And that really had a lot of leaders in Europe, uh, ambassadors and so forth, extremely worried about whether the United States would be able to maintain its global presence and would actually still be committed to NATO with all this unrest that is happening. And I think in many ways we have this debate now again, because I find it interesting that we have these intrinsic and, and uh, sorry, intricate uh, models on deterrence, conventional deterrence, nuclear deterrence, military power and all of this. And, and there are debates about alliance cohesion and so forth. But the most obvious problem that we have right now is that the United States doesn't present a picture that is very enviable, that is very, very much, you know, other countries want to emulate or, you know, a country that you really can say is supremacy into Paris into the international system based on what's happening here. When you see the pictures of a country slowly tearing itself apart, I think there's somewhat of a cognitive dissonance in this country when it comes to the foreign policy elite and um, the rest of the country about what the future direction of the United States should be, but also what other countries see when they look at the United States. And I don't think it's a pretty picture. And I do think, and I'm, I'm glad that you actually asked this question about like the domestic dimension of all of this, because I think it's an underappreciated factor because we can talk all about wanting to contain China, wanting to compete with China and Russia and a new age of great power competition. But if domestically things are not in order, it's very, it's going to be very difficult for the United States and the United States, um, did pull through in the 19, in 1968, it elected Richard Nixon and Richard Nixon, no matter what flaws he had, he was a fairly good foreign policy. Uh, he was very good foreign policy news for, Europeans, but Europeans and also for um, the, the Asian allies of the United States. And really to your point about, about uh, Trump's election strategy also just occurred to me, I have to think about Richard Nixon because what he did really um, was he, he coined or he developed what has been called the so-called Southern strategy, but which he really rushed away the Southern United States from the Democrats. The Democrats had dominated that part of the country electorally for many, many decades prior. And um, Nixon had a campaign strategy that really emphasized law and order and appealed to the so-called silent majority, like those people who are not protesting. Um, and, and he really appealed to law and order people. He really appealed to the evangelical voters in the South and also really appealed to latent, latent and rather blatant racism in certain segments of US society to mobilize them and to vote for the Republican platform in the election. And if you are careful and if you read um, Trump's tweets, you see that he's essentially trying to emulate 
1968 strategy. He tweets about law and order. He tweets about the silent majority. He really tries to play off um, these, um, these, these protests against the law and order politics that he wants to implement. And I do think there's a danger there's the danger that he can actually, I mean, it's, I shouldn't say danger, there's the potential that he can actually succeed in doing so. Although, of course, many, many things are different, but I do think you have a major problem when you look at polls in the United States um, with um, what is called, I think, um, like a, a, a falsification bias. I, I, don't, I, I don't really know the specific term, but it's essentially what you have in Austria or in Germany with country uh, when you when you when you do polls and not a lot of people wanting to ex publicly express that they're voting for the AfD or the Freedom Party in Austria, you have the same problem here. When it comes to polls, a lot of people that you ask are actually not openly admit going to admit that they're going to vote for Trump. So I think polls has to be have to be somewhat taken uh, with a grain of salt, in my opinion. And I do fear that this is something that can be repeated. You also have to understand that Biden is probably the weakest Democratic uh, candidate in decades. Um, the, the less he talks, the more successful he is, and I think that should tell you a lot about the caliber of, of, of what a candidate he is, which is really, um, it's not very, very comforting, I think, for Democratic voters, and then you also have really the Democratic Party splitting into different factions, and the question is how much can they really unite um, 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 uh, or, like, cast aside the differences and really really focus on Trump, but then also on the Republic in within the Republican Party, you have different segments and different faction competing for influence. And I do think when it comes to foreign policy, what's going to be interesting in the long run is what's really going to happen to the moderate Republican wing that sort of dominated Republican foreign policy for decades. All principally all the expertise, the foreign policy expertise within the Republican Party lies within the so-called never Trumpers people who openly opposed Trump um, during the 2016 election and also refused to work for his administration after that. And what's going to happen to these people if Trump wins? That's going to be interesting because they are sort of discredited in the eyes of Trump and, and their policies are little by little trickling through the bureaucracy because the bureaucracy is still very much dominated by Democratic and uh, Republican moderates in many ways, like this sort of permanent bureaucratic class. Trump has referred to it as the deep state, but this is this is, this is definitely something that I think one should ponder. Um, having said all of that, I don't think there's that much difference between moderate Democrats and moderate Republicans when it comes to questions of defense and foreign policy. So there might not be that much of a shift, but I do think if Trump stays in office, I think these people are really little by little going to be moved further away um, from the center of power. And I think that's also going to be very interesting to what degree this is really impacting the long-term um, direction of U.S. defense and foreign policy. Mm -hmm. Well, Franz Stefan Gadi, thank you very much. You've covered all relevant developments and uh, issues related to the U.S. Uh, security and defense policy post-COVID-19 in just 70 minutes. Thank you to our listeners, watchers for staying with us all the time. And for those of you who are interested in the research work of uh, Franz, please visit uh, him on the webpage of the International Institute for Security for Strategic Studies or follow him on Twitter. Franz, thank you very much for your 
insights and your contribution for staying with me for the last 70 minutes. Thank you. It was a great pleasure and all the best uh, to you in Vienna. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.